0: Hi,
2: I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show.
3: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show, and a packed one it is. It's like a trip to the library with back-to-back-to-back authors, starting with uh, Catherine Stewart, the author of The Power Worshippers, right straight ahead. welcome back everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is um, one of the leading authorities on the political aspects of the religious right. She is the author of the Good News Club. She contributes to the New York Times, American Prospect, Washington Post, many other publications. She has a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Her name is Catherine Stewart. She joins me by phone. Catherine, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be here, Tom. Thanks so much for having me.
3: Um, I want to talk about this uh, dangerous rise of religious nationalism. Uh, first of all, what is religious nationalism, and how does it compare to what I remember as the moral majority from the uh, Reagan era?
2: These are great questions. So <clears throat> first we'll talk about the definition, and we'll talk about what's changed Christian nationalism is a political ideology that ties the idea of America to certain religious and cultural identities. The ideology is anti-democratic because it says that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States is a particular religion, and it insists that that's what makes us distinctive rather than our democratic system of governance or our constitution or our long, if imperfect, history of assimilating very diverse people in a pluralist society. And uh, religious nationalism is also a device for mobilizing and often manipulating a large subsection of the public. So when you look to other countries and you see uh, leaders like Viktor Orban or uh, Vladimir Putin or Erdogan binding themselves very closely to religious conservatives in those countries in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of power, we rightly recognize that as a form of religious nationalism. And that's what we're seeing with Trump's alliances with hyper-conservative religious leaders uh, today. Now, how has this changed since uh, the days of the moral majority? I mean, let's start with the 2016 election. Trump got elected by, by making a deal with this cohort. And as a result, he won a higher share of their vote than any of his Republican predecessors. In, say, the Bush era, um, Christian nationalists used to be just one part of a relatively diverse Republican coalition, and the controlling powers tended to try to please them with mere words, promising things like, we're going to limit abortion and the like, or defend uh, the traditional family. But today, they're the single most important element of the Trump Republican Party, And they're collecting more than just words from their leaders. In fact, Trump is always boasting of all that he's delivering to them. Um, He's always saying, I've given you everything you asked for and more. And uh, they're asking for more than a seat at the table. They want to overturn the, uh, you know, smash the table altogether and replace it with something different. They're demanding a license to discriminate against people who are different from themselves. Uh, Basically, the ability to. Uh, withdraw from the law when it offends their religious principles and thus also withdraw from the sort of social contract that uh, applies to everybody else in society. And I think it's also important to note that what's distinctive about this current phase of religious nationalism is the near-perfect alignment of this form of nationalism with a single political party. So... Even though the movement over time has set itself in opposition to both religious liberalism and political liberalism it's never enjoyed the type of power that it that it enjoys today
3: when you talk about the the dangerous rise um, it it presupposes that there's an end somewhere on the horizon um, is is this going does this have the potential of going back in time to the the days when there was a like in England when there was a religious leader along with the monarch um or as we see in some uh, middle eastern countries there's a president then there's an ayatollah um I, I, are we headed in that direction
2: I don't think so i mean the, there's no sort of central command and control for this movement um their the movement is made up of a number of different organizations and leaders. Um, they spent decades spending hundreds of millions of dollars building an infrastructure of legal advocacy organizations, uh, think tanks, political campaign infrastructure, data organizations. Um, they've also transformed many of America's conservative churches into what is essentially partisan political and I think we should talk more about that later. But um, it's not uh, like a sort of centrally organized uh, movement. It's got a lot of different pieces. That said, my book does sort of pull back the curtain on many of the leading personalities of the movement, many of the most intriguing personalities of the movement, along with the inner workings of a lot of the advocacy organizations that um, comprise it
3: of machinery your book um pulls from interviews and and uh meetings that you've attended and research that you've done over a decade um that's right was it always with the book in mind and and whether it was or wasn't were you um What got you interested in this particular direction?
2: Well, I first got interested in the topic in 2009 when a good news club came to my kid's public elementary school. I was living in Santa Barbara, California. Good news clubs are designed to convert children in their earliest years of learning, kids in the kindergarten, first, second, third grade, into a deeply fundamentalist form of evangelical christianity and they because they're in public schools they confuse little kids into thinking their public school endorses this form of religion the good news clubs that i attended and i attended dozens all across the country they encourage children attending the clubs to proselytize and recruit their classmates so i was astonished to learn that there were thousands of these clubs operating in public schools nationwide and to me, they seemed wildly inappropriate in a diverse public school setting. Look, I mean, if we're, our public schools are to function effectively in a diverse society, they need to be welcoming for all families. But at first, I, I really also thought they were kind of a relic of the American past, and I was really wrong about that. <laughs> so I, I learned more about these clubs and the movement behind them and decided to publish a book about them and the movement they represented, and that came out in 2012. That was my first book on this topic It's called The Good News Club. Uh, and over the years, I just kept digging deeper. Uh, I just kind of couldn't look away from this um, feature of uh, our society. I was stunned by the movement's legal sophistication, determination, its coherence, and the fact that it was operating largely under the radar of many uh, moderates and progressives in our society. So you know i had to conclude at the end that good news clubs as much as they were just a, a part of a larger attack on public ed the attack on public education was really just one part of a larger attack on america as a modern constitutional republic
3: with the um in your in your book you talk about uh leaders versus uh followers and is there a significant difference between the goals of the leaders and the followers?
2: Absolutely. I think a lot of the people attending America's churches, uh, conservative churches, I'm sorry, would not think of themselves as members of this movement, but they have uh, in many instances surrendered their political will to their uh, religious leaders who direct them how to vote. I do think it's helpful in understanding the movement to uh, distinguish between leaders and followers. This is a leader-driven movement. Now, the foot soldiers may believe often that they're fighting for things like traditional marriage or a ban on abortion, um, but over time the movement's strategists have reframed these culture war issues to capture and control the votes of a large subsection of the American public. They understand that if you can get people to vote on a couple of issues, you can get their vote. And so they use these issues to direct political power for themselves and their allies um, and increase also the flow of public and private money in their direction. Um, I'll just give you an example of this. I went to this one of uh, multiple pastors. It was in Southern California, and it was held at a megachurch. And these pastors, you know, the movement leaders know that if you can control how pastors, what kind of messages they're giving to their congregations, you can get those pastors to turn their congregants to vote in a certain way. So at this particular event, which was held in a, sort of a not wealthy area, so you're, many of the pastors are working with congregations, you know, where people are sort of financially struggling, or, you know, maybe they've got jobs, but they're not making a ton of money. So when the uh, the, the, the leaders of the event told the pastors, he said, when you're talking to your congregations about, you know, financial issues, what's more important, talking about the minimum wage or talking about life? So, meaning abortion. So, if you put it that way, you know, what's a few extra dollars versus life itself? Um, And the pastors, you could see, they're sort of like nodding, like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And they, uh, leaders of this event, were also offering pastors, tools that they could use to convey these issues to their congregations, like voter guides or videos or things like that, things of that nature.
3: They're giving them so, talking points.
2: Exactly. They were giving them very, very clear talking points. Uh, they are directing pastors to encourage their congregants to vote biblical values, what they call biblical values, of course. Um, I think most American Christians actually think that... Uh, their religion has to do with something with caring for the poor and supporting the undefended and the vulnerable. But uh, this movement has kind of embraced an incredibly uh, distinct interpretation of the religion that emphasizes, that boils down at the end of the day to these positions in the culture
3: wars. Who who are some of the leaders of this uh, uh, movement? And are, are they people that we know, or are they somewhat in the shadows?
2: Uh, some of them are people that we know, if you pay attention to this kind of uh, movement, like folks like Tony Perkins, the head of the Family Research Council, is somebody who I profiled in my book, Ralph Drolinger, uh, who's the head of an organization called Capital Ministries. He uh, target. Uh, political leadership with his ministry. He's taught uh, Bible study to at least 11 out of 15 members of Trump's cabinet, multiple members of the uh, U.S. Congress, uh, folks like David Barton, who's a kind of the movement's sort of favorite sort of fringe historian and has held pretty uh, important roles at various points in the Republican Party and in. He's also the leader of uh, one of the leaders of an in- initiative called Project Blitz, which is an, a legislative initiative targeting state legislatures with um, identical bills intended to grade, dis- uh, degrade the separation of church and state. So the movement does have uh, many leaders. I also write about some of the leaders of the past, folks like Phyllis Schlafly, um, thinkers, theologians who. Uh, had an outsized influence in the movement, such as Lusas, Rex and many others.
3: We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, straight ahead.
2: Hello out there everybody, it's me, Tigger,
3: ti double that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Thunder program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> A message from the CDC and the Ad Council.
0: East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine. East Village Magazine community-focused and community-supported.
3: Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional.
4: You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again. This time, from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the sky. Soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, pearly gate rock. All dug up. Lying in the chapel and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley.
3: Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative
4: casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your
1: Elvis from heaven, send 995 in check or money order to Elvis from heaven, P.O. Box 714, Clio, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residents add $3
0: technical assistance for the tom sumner program is provided by swiftlet technology engineering and it services at swiftlet.technology
4: the tom sumner program.com. The tom sumner program.com. this
1: is
3: congressman dan Kildee, and you're listening to the tom sumner program We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism Straight Ahead. There's a huge divide in this country, and and some people think it's a right-left, some people think it's uh, based on uh, income and wealth, wealth inequality. Um, There are certainly culture wars going on over Issues like uh, abortion and uh, gun control. Um, What are the money interests that that people are concerned about that that control government through campaign donations and lobbying activities and and other things? Um, Are those things different? than the power that the um, religious nationalists are seeking?
2: I think this is a really important question. Um, what's the relationship between uh, the money interest and religious nationalism? Um, religious nationalism is unabashedly identified with Uh, power and wealth, Um, the movement has come to depend critically in recent years on the wealth of a growing subset of America's plutocratic class. And these folks are committed to low taxation and minimally regulated economy uh, as much as they are committed to these right-wing positions in the so-called culture wars if you look at you know this is another way you can see that this is not just a movement about uh, the culture wars about abortion the same-sex marriage when they're communicating to one another then this these are i'm sorry when they're communicating to congregants and the rank and file it's always abortion and you know defense of the traditional family but when they're communicating to political leaders, when they're communicating to one another, when they're communicating especially to the funders, they're embracing things like what they call biblical economics, the idea that the Bible says uh, is against uh, uh, environmental regulation, regulation of industry, the Bible favors minimum taxation. I mean, this sounds kind of absurd, but this is something that they talk about quite openly when they are um, actually... You know, in the forms that they share. So I'll just give you one example. Um, Ralph Dollinger, who I mentioned before and who has this very influ- politically influential um, ministry network called Capital Ministries, says that progressive taxes are unbiblical. He wrote, he offers Bible study uh, guide, uh, texts that are available online. You can sort of look them up. One of them says, Nowhere does God command the institutions of government or commerce to fully support those with genuine need. He said um, in another study guide um, toward a biblical understanding of lawmaking, he cites Peter to 18 to 21: Servants, be submissive to your masters in all respects, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And he explains this is what he draws from this. With this what this, uh, this Bible passage, the economy of Rome at the time of Peter's writing was one of slave and master. The principle, however, of submitting to one's boss carries over to today. Think about that: submitting to one's boss, not just you know having a job and you know participating in economic growth. And it's he's, I mean, it's 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 kind of astonishing. Another uh, one of those leaders I mentioned earlier, David Barton has also said that God opposes progressive income taxes, capital gains taxes, and a minimum, minimum wage laws. So the leaders of the movement have incredibly expansive positions on things like foreign policy, economic policy, domestic policy. And that shows that this is a broad political movement.
3: In the 2016 election, and, and since, during, the, uh, during this uh, first term of uh, Donald Trump's presidency, um, there are so many people who have a difficult time reconciling how people who claim to be um, Christian can accept the behavior of um, a, a president that the Pope says is clearly not Christian.
2: True. I know. It's incredible. I think, you know, for people on the outside, the alliance between the so-called values vote cohort and Trump remains baffling. I think some people think that it's just transactional. You know, they think that Trump will enact policies that are favorable to their interests or appoint judges that are going to Um, appoint uh, judges that are going to vote in their positions that they want in the so-called culture wars. or There are many who are economic conservatives and they think that Trump Trump will just simply promote right-wing economic policies that are favorable uh, to them. But, you know, to those familiar with the political transformation of this large segment of white Christian conservatism over the past two decades is That it's really about power. It's not. Look, they have the sense that Trump is fighting for them. You know, they really don't want just a seat at the table. They want to replace America's constitutional republic with a state rooted in a particular understanding of their religion and to uh, rearrange the existing order. Um, If you look at People And so for those folks, Trump is their ideal leader. I mean, people like Paula White, who's now a member of the Trump White House and special advisor to the Face and Opportunity Initiative, describes Trump as a king. She said, it, is, it takes God to raise up a king. Uh, folks like Franklin Graham has said, uh, I believe God, I'm paraphrasing here, he said something like, I believe God played a hand in the last, in this last, in the 2016 election, other leaders like David Barton have called Trump God's guy or God's candidate. They really want a, a more authoritarian form of power. And they actually comp- compare him sometimes to kings, like King Cyrus or King David. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of astonishing that we're really, the thing about kings is that they don't have to ro- follow the rules. They are the law. And um, there is something about um, Trump that understands as longing for the kind of hard hand of the despot. He sort of plays into this. It,
4: it, the,
3: it, is the war, not war, that's the wrong word, is the, um, the argument about, Separation of church and state over.
2: The ar- yes, the argument is about that, but it's also really about uh, making a, a direct attack on democracy itself. Um, the Christian nationalist movement today doesn't believe in pluralism, uh, doesn't respect pluralism or believe in um, a modern secular democracy. And I found this really when I went, for instance, to the Verona, Italy, I went to an organization uh, called the World Congress of Families. They hold it every year or so, and it's a gathering of the so-called global conservative movement. There were uh, a number of uh, American religious right representatives there, and they were in discussion with leaders of um, the sort of global conservative movement in other countries, Russia plays an outsized interest, uh, 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 an outsized role in this in this uh, alliance. Um, there were other representatives from folks like uh, from places like Spain or uh, or Poland, and one of the speakers stood up and said, "Please make liberal politicians fear you." Another one uh, stood up and declared war on um, liberal democracy. Um, others. Uh, Sometimes they couch it as a culture war in support or defense of the American family. I'm sorry, in defense of the traditional family. But when you really look at what they're after, it's replacing the idea of um, liberal democratic governance with uh, an alliance of faith-based ethno-nationalist states.
3: Which which of the, uh, of the two documents, the U.S. Constitution and the Bible, um, are... Best understood.
2: Um, that's a good question. What do you mean by best I've understood, always, and what do you I, mean
3: by whom? <laughs> I, well, I've I've always thought that um, that that the Constitution and the Bible have been misquoted and used to defend a variety of oppressive behaviors, and it, it strikes me that people really don't understand those documents very well, and and I, I guess I'm saying, um, is is this a matter of people not understanding the the Constitution or misunderstanding um, the the teachings of the Bible? Um, you know, when when did it become? When did the Bible become? Not so much a teaching tool as a guide for ruling.
2: Yeah, well, you know, these are there a couple of this question raises a number of interesting points, and I think it's worth noting that there's a whole movement of religious people who draw very different interpretations of the Bible and who think Christianity is about caring for the poor and undefended, not abandoning them. About affirming people's rights and not denying them, and about being open and tolerant, embracing a pluralistic world, and not seeing people as tribe or religious insider first, but seeing people as human beings first. Instead, um, I think that Christianity in America is obviously extraordinarily diverse, as is probably every other religion. So the movement includes many evangelicals, but it's worth it you know, mentioning that it excludes many evangelicals too, um, many white evangelicals and probably most black evangelicals. And um, the larger movement does include also representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. Um, And while it claims to represent an authentic form of religion, many progressive Christian leaders question whether it is authentically Christian in the first place.
3: A lot of people would uh, draw the conclusion that there's uh, uh, a racial component to this, and, and you refer to that in your book as being um, more implicit than explicit.
2: That's true. You know, at one of the conferences that I went to in 2018, I think it was a Road to Majority conference, Ralph Reed, who's one of the le- leaders of uh One of the very influential right wing policy groups, he stood up there and he said, They, meaning Democrats, are always talking about race, and he said, They get it wrong. He said, It wasn't whites that voted for Trump as much as evangelicals. He said, If you, and conservative Catholics, he said, If you back the evangelical vote out of the election, Trump loses with whites. So he was correct that the election was very much about religion, but I believe is papering over a fundamental connection between racism and conservative white evangelicalism. He ignores the way that form of religion on the ground uh, and racism tend to reinforce one another. For one thing, they're driving support for the culture wars um, that are promoting a political party that has made race-based gerrymandering and, voter suppression a strategic imperative. But this basic reality of the ways in which white conservative evangelicalism and race, racism reinforce one another, really stands in uncomfortable contradiction with the leader's goals of trying to expand Christian nationalism to people of color. As I describe in my book, uh, I go to events where Uh, They're trying to gather together Latino pastors and black pastors to try to get them in on the culture wars, too. I mean, leaders of the movement can uh, see the demographic future of our country and voting habits. And they realize if they limit their, uh, you know, voters are limited to white conservative evangelicals and, and Catholics, then they, are largely, they're really going to lose these elections. So they've made a very big effort to reach out to pastors of color, uh, conservative-leaning pastors of color, I should say, in an in, in effort to kind of gather some subsection of votes of their congregants. It's kind of a cynical move, in my view.
3: In in the title of your book, the book is uh, The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. There are a lot of uh, Trump supporters and supporters of this movement that would think that there's nothing dangerous about this at all. Um, what do you think the dangers are?
2: Well, I think the danger is, uh, you know, to our democracy itself, to our right. To um, our public order. I mean, think about it. Our, As you mentioned earlier, our country has never been more divided. And I think that a lot of that comes from the top. I mean, uh, at this year's March for Life in Washington, D.C., Trump said to the crowd, they are coming after me because I am fighting for you. I mean, He's basically declaring himself the representative of only one section of the American public. He is not even pretending to represent all Americans. He is not trying to unite us in any way. He said, you know, he sort of stoked this persecution narrative. He said, the far left left is actively working to erase our God-given right." He said that Democrats want to quote ban religious believers from the public square. This is ridiculous. Nobody's trying to ban <laughs> believers from the public square, but stoking the persecution narrative is a way. It's like this is what religious nationalism do. They they cast their political opponents not just people with honest differences of opinion. They they cast their political opponents as, as the enemy, you know, the evil ones. Um, Bill Barr calls them, um, you know, organized, or hell-bent on organized destruction. He identifies anyone who sort of opposes his agenda as sort of secularists who are committing an unrelenting assault on religion and traditional values. And though people who support pluralism or want to respect the separation of church and state are outside, out there sort of ransacking everything that is holy and good so this is what religious nationalisms around the world do they rely heavily on a persecution narrative the idea that the dominant national identity is under threat from an aggressive other and uh, I, I don't unfortunately see this type of rhetoric diminishing in the Trump era
3: this is something that people have complained about ever since the Supreme Court ruled against prayer in school. And I remember uh, JFK uh, well, I've seen video of jFK uh, in in press conference settings uh, responding to that ruling by saying that that parents you know, have a number of uh, options to address their concerns by praying more at home and attending their churches with more fidelity. Um, but we don't hear that kind of, of, of talk anymore. And it does seem as though like, like prayer in school has been almost criminalized in in the process of trying to be more politically correct or politically sensitive. Um, is, that's
2: interesting you say that I, I i have to disagree children have always been allowed to pray in school um and what what's not supposed to happen at school uh, is that teachers are not allowed to direct children in sectarian prayer in public schools because public schools necessarily serve a diverse population but listen I wrote but i'm a not book sure about that people the
3: understand the uh the intricacy of that um uh, it's, They feel like they're being. And it doesn't seem that hard to me to understand either. But there are people who believe that that there's actually a repression there.
2: It's interesting. There are. That's a sort of a line that's been promoted by the right. They talk about you know, prayer in schools as being the, the thing. Sometimes they say it's prayer in schools. Sometimes they say it's Roe versus Wade. But if you look at this, if you look at the kind of intellectual line of this kind of opposition to um, d- democracy and pluralism and equality, or what Russ Ras- Rasjourni, who is like an incredibly influential theologian, called the heresy of democracy, the heresy of democracy, think about that, There's a much deeper, there are much deeper roots in our American uh, history of this kind of opposition. I mean, the opposition to public schools, to public education goes back to the era following emancipation when pro-slavery theologians such as uh, Robert Louis Dabney, uh, who was an incredibly influential theologian, um, opposed the... Formation of public schools because he didn't think that white people should be taxed to offer education to black children. Um, uh, these folks decried pluralism. They, in some ways, are the founders of the sort of Christian nation myth. They they had this idea that um, America was founded as an authentically Christian nation with hierarchies that were rooted in the Bible. Um, that uh, the we were supposed to be having the Constitution was uh, ensuring freedom, not freedom from religion, but for religion. Meaning that you know um, religion should be able to play a, a forceful role in American life. Um, they had a very particular understanding of religion, um, and uh, I, I want to read you a quote from one of these pro-slavery theologians that, you know, was defending slavery. He said the parties in this conflict between abolition and slavery, they're, okay, on the one side, atheists, socialists, communists, red Republicans, Jacobins. Jacobins referring, of course, to the French Revolution and the principles of the Enlightenment. He said on the one side and freedom of order and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. So they're positing this, conflict is one between the orderly folk who believe in biblical literalism and absolute submission to authority, the idea that hierarchies are ordained in the Bible and uh, equal rights for all is, is, is hooey. <laughs> That's one side. And then on the other side, you have us, you know, the regulate, you know, promoters of regulated freedom and order and a sort of biblical society. And so you see this kind of divide still taking place today. Now, of course, the role of slavery has uh, really been taken out of the picture, but still today, the leaders of the Christian nationalist movement talk about hierarchies as biblically ordained, certainly um, of men over women, and um, uh, certainly, of course, of, um, as, as Ralph Drolinger put it, you know, uh, employers over their employees.
3: We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Straight ahead. The
4: Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
3: Hi, this is Joe Byte from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening
4: and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner
3: Program. We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, straight ahead. Has this movement been an evolution over time, or is it a fairly recently trending phenomenon?
2: You're absolutely right. It is an evolution over time. Um, this ideology that has promoted the values of biblical literalism and set itself in opposition to religious liberalism and political uh, literal i'm sorry, Um, this ideology promoted the values of biblical literalism (laughs) and set itself in opposition to religious liberalism um, has been around for a long time. But what varies with this type of ideology over time is the alignment with political power. Um, What's distinctive about the current uh, phase of this movement is the near perfect alignment of this form of religious nationalism with a single political party. So, Um, This cohort uh, was, you know, even a couple of decades ago considered more fringe. Think about it. Look, when Roe v. Wade was passed, remember, most Republicans supported it. Um, Betty Ford called it a great, great decision. Think about uh, Barry Goldwater, that great conservative hero. He supported uh, uh, liberalized abortion laws early in his career. And his wife, Peggy, was a co-founder of Planned Parenthood in Arizona. I mean, things looked very different Uh, even a few decades ago. There was a kind of pro-choice Republican movement that persisted up into the 90s. But over time, leaders of the movement kind of figured out that they could use certain culture war issues to unite and coalesce these disparate strands of the movement around a much more tight core. And so they purged the Republican Party of any pro-choice voices, um, and they united the, the movement around, you know,
3: Well, and interesting, post-war issues. And, and, and interestingly, it seems like the uh, Republicans and Democrats, as we know them, are on the opposite sides of where you think they would be on that issue. You would expect the the Republicans to be pro-choice, and um, and, and Democrats to be pro-life, um, based on their their core principles.
2: Um, it's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, the, uh, I'm not sure you would think that Democrats would be. I'm not sure what you mean by pro-life. Um, I think they would uh, be
3: more apt to be the group advocating for an unborn child. Well, and and I think there was
2: cohort of the Republic of the democratic party you're talking about. It's true that in the previous era, abortion was primarily seen as a Catholic issue. It was often put in the context of a, 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 of a larger ethos of care for the poor and undefended, but Remember, I mean, I think that for many Democrats, um, a pro-choice position, the idea that um, a, a, a fetus, uh, particularly in its, uh, the earliest weeks of development or a, a, a zygote, is not the moral equivalent of a born child, is, is not an, a position that would be considered uncomfortable for, for many Democrats, um, but um, even Catholics, uh, while Catholic ideology was um, primarily uh, pro-life, was, was pro, pro anti-abortion, there were many Catholics who um, supported, uh, based on lived experience, some form of, um, expressed some form of comfort. You know, individual Catholics that expressed some form of comfort with some form of uh, liberalization of abortion laws.
3: And so and birth control.
2: And birth control, for sure.
3: But unfortunately, this is so frustrating for me, Catherine, because this is a, a, a fascinating conversation, but we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. And I always oh. want to make sure that guests have an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. First, I'll remind people the new book that comes out this month from uh, my guest, Catherine uh, Stewart, is... The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Ride of Religious Nationalism. But, um, Catherine, you've done a, a number of other things, op-eds for The New York Times, uh, the uh, other book, The Good News Club, and, and other writing that you've done. Do you have a website?
2: Yes, I do. Thank you. It's CatherineStewart.me, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Cass Stewart. There are two S's there. And, of course, uh, my book, The Power Worshippers, is available everywhere books are for sale.
3: Well, Catherine, thank you so much for uh, spending this time and talking about this, uh, um, this, this new book.
2: I appreciate it. It's really a great conversation, Tom. Thank you so much.
3: All right. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner programs. <music> up next we're going to have a few highlights from last night's republican national convention we did this last week we we managed to get highlights from all four nights on we heard night one and two uh... of the uh, republican convention uh, well we heard all four from the democratic convention last week we heard one and two yesterday on the show before armchair politics and uh... tonight is the final night but i have Up next, uh, some highlights from night three of the Republican convention, which included uh, a speech by the vice president accepting his nomination to move forward for re-election, Mike Pence. So stay tuned. We'll hear those and then uh, lots more straight ahead on today's Tom Sumner
1: program. There's no doubt how President Trump sees America. He sees America for what it is. A nation that has done more good in this world than any other. A nation that deserves far more gratitude than grievance. And if you want a president who falls silent when our heritage is demeaned or insulted, he's not your man.
0: From Seattle and Portland to Washington and New York, Democrat-run cities across this country are being overrun by violent mobs. I'm talking about the heroes of our law enforcement and armed services. Leftists try to turn them into villains. They want to cancel them.
4: Heroism is grace, not perpetual outrage. Heroism is rebuilding our communities, not destroying them.
1: President Trump and I will always support the right of Americans to peaceful protest. But rioting and looting is not peaceful protest. Tearing down statues is not free speech.
0: Defund the police is the rallying cry for the new radical Democrat Party.
1: Joe Biden would double down on the very policies that are leading to violence in America's cities. The hard truth is, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. And under President Trump, We will always stand with those who stand on the thin blue line and we're not going to defund the police, not now, not ever.
0: This is not just a choice between Republican and Democrat, or left and right. This is an election that will decide if we keep America, America, or if we head down an uncharted, frightening path towards socialism.
4: Republicans are the party that freed the slaves. And the party that put the first black men and women in Congress. It's the party of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And now, Tim Scott and Donald Trump.
0: During one of my most difficult times, I expected to have the support of my family. But I had more support than I knew. As I came out of anesthesia, one of the first calls I received was from Ivanka Trump. As I recovered, My phone rang again. It was President Trump calling to check on me. A woman in a leadership role can still seem novel. Not so for President Trump. For decades, he has elevated women to senior positions in business and in government. He confides in and consults us, respects our opinions, and insists that we are on equal footing with the men. I want my daughter to grow up and President Donald J. Trump's America.
4: I say to Americans who love our country, young and old,
1: be a radical for freedom, be a radical for liberty, and be a radical for our republic, for which I stand, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all.
0: Donald Trump is the most pro-life president that this nation has ever had defending life at all stages. His belief in the sanctity of life transcends politics.
4: The Biden-Harris ticket is the most radically pro-abortion campaign in history. They and other politicians are Catholics in name only.
1: In our first three years, we built the greatest economy in the world. We made America great again. And then the coronavirus struck from China. Now, last week, Joe Biden said that no miracle is coming. Well, what Joe doesn't seem to understand is that America is a nation of miracles. We stand at a crossroads, America. President Trump has set our nation on a path of freedom and opportunity. Joe Biden would set America on a path of socialism and decline. But we're not going to let it happen. And with President Donald Trump in the White House for four more years, and with God's help, we will make America great again. Again. You pilots,
4: get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Come on!
1: Come on, get out of here! It's time.